Welcome to The Director's Take, a podcast where we explore how you go from directing something with your mates to being the most senior decision maker on a film set. I'm Oz Arshad. And I'm Marcus Thomas. And we are both writer-directors at the beginning of our TV and feature film directing journeys. The pathway doesn't exist, so we are going to do our best to help bridge the gap. lovely lot how goes it how you doing thanks for joining so welcome back to another exciting episode of the director's tape podcast it's all very fun <laughs> we, we we never in a million years what we do this many episodes but here we are so as you know me and oz are in our little slow periods we're we're at that point now in the industry you might have even seen me slagging everyone off on twitter and the industry this is literally why i have a podcast to filter that frustration very very constructively because uh, i know i'm not the only one but yeah i've we're, we're at that point now where we've made all the shorts we've done all the stuff we've done all the training and we're just waiting it could happen next month we could get the call from someone to come and be like please direct our thing or someone could reply to one of the emails we've sent and be like we really like this treatment or we'd love to see the script or we'd love to talk more about this idea Come and make a film with us. Could happen next month. Could happen five years from now. Could happen 10 years from now. Who knows? But that's the nature of the industry. And we're just making sure we're doing as much as we can, keeping proactive, which is part of what this podcast is about, is remaining proactive, making connections um, alongside this, kind of plotting our pathway, having you guys follow us on the journey. Because I know that you're all on it as well. A lot of you are in the exact same boat where you're just waiting for an industry which doesn't really cater to us. Why this episode is very, very timely, actually. Weirdly enough, we've recorded it as one of our first episodes. It might have been episode, like the 15th episode we recorded, which is a long time ago now. Back in February, we actually did it before we'd even released the podcast. So Aneta is a super talented director and they've been plugging away and been in the industry for years and years and years and years. And they were in the exact same point which I was describing, which me and Oz are at now. And actually, they did the same Diverse Directors course workshop at the NFTS with Oz. That's where they met. And she'd done 10 shorts over the course of maybe, I don't want to say how long it was, but it was definitely like over a decade. And she's been there just waiting for the opportunity. And then out of the blue, someone watched one of the shorts that she'd done historically and then brought her in for an interview on Doctor Who. And then lo and behold, she got the job and did it fluently and is now working on HBO dramas. And it's like, she was literally just sat there waiting for the entire time. So this is a really timely episode for me personally, because I'm kind of in that space now where I'm just like waiting, which I don't like, but there'll be a lot in it in terms of allowing everyone to kind of keep the faith. And there's so much good information in there about directing prep, how to approach directing TV and your prep for that. So yeah, you guys are in for a treat. So boil the kettle, get a cup of tea, or drink from your flask, I don't know if you're on the move. And yeah, enjoy. I don't think there is anyone I go on about to people more than the next person I'm really excited to have on the show. And her name is Annette Lawfer. And your journey into film began in acting, was it? Yes, it did. Thanks yes. for that lovely introduction. That was... There's way more. I've not finished yet. <laughs> oh my God. You've, you've created many short films over the years. The earliest one that I can recall was called Winnie and the Duppy Back, back in 2006. 
Then you made some subsequent shots in Zen, like one was it one man wink and then Scarlet. Winking Man Rock. Yeah. The Winking Man Rock. You made Afro Punk Girl, which you did with Phil London and London Calling Plus Scheme. And it was in many festivals, including Aesthetica. You then did a, the arrival on the NFTS Diverse Directors course, which was longlisted for a BAFTA and in many festivals, including Encounters. And it was this film and obviously just your work ethic that would eventually lead you to direct the 2021 New Year's Eve special of Doctor Who, which was called Eve of the Daleks. You have recently completed two episodes on HBO's Get Men in Black. You have several projects in development. You think with a wealth of experience, all that, as well as being a great friend who I admire and love, welcome Annette Lawford to the Director's Tape podcast. Thank you so much. Wow. It never feels like that when you're doing it, but when you hear it, you go, oh, Yeah, you've done right. bits and bobs. You should be very proud. It's a lot. So it's great to have someone like yourself on and someone who's just like persevered and, you know, you've just been on it for years and you've seen all the different types of filmmakers that have come and gone. You've seen... You've been in quite a few schemes here and there, and it's just great to see you flying and rising, you know, from all of us as filmmakers who, who, who look up to you. And the first thing I wanted to talk about and get straight into it was, you know, was, was Winnie and the Duppy back your first short back in 2006? How did that come about and how did you get into actually short filmmaking? No, Winnie was not my first at all. So as you said, yeah, I started as an actor and trained in acting. I went to drama school and I was always in love with film but um, we didn't have anybody in my family that had anything to do with that. My mother was a performer, she was a dancer. So initially I wanted to be a dancer, then moved into acting. So that's the closest I kind of came to the industry, but film seemed like so far away. So theatre seemed closer and going through acting seemed even closer, more of a, I don't know, more accessible in a way. So I did that, but then found that being a woman of color sort of was really difficult to get interesting casting. And eventually I decided that directing theater may be a better way to express myself. I was living in Denmark at the time and I started a theater company and um, that's how I trained myself in directing. Um, I knew a lot of actors obviously because I'd come from an acting background and so I got a lot of acting friends to, to do fringe theater basically and um, with the money that I made from the box office, I financed my first few short films. And my first short film was, a God, that was, it was shot in Denmark actually. And it was called Dinner for One. And it was about a woman who suffered bulimia and she was invited to dinner. And it was all about uh, this eating disorder, but put in this very kind of abstract kind of world. And that was my first exploration with film because I could see what the camera could do that theatre couldn't do. I knew that like intellectually, but not really emotionally what you could do. So that did really well. And then I realised that this is something that maybe I should continue doing short films in order to um, teach myself to do film. Because again, it was very difficult for me to get into film school. I also didn't have money to go into film school. I ended up going to film college in Denmark, the European full school I think it's still called and um, so I learned a lot there and particularly it opened my eyes to sound what you could do storytelling with sound so each time I did something there was another element that I could put in my toolbox of you know how I could sort of develop to becoming who I am now 
and I did, uh, I think, three short films in Denmark, a low-budget feature, which was a mad, mad summer of just everybody I knew coming together and doing this ridiculous story I wrote in three weeks that was a mixture of Charlie's Angels and Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. And it was brilliantly shot, but the story made no sense whatsoever because I didn't know what I was doing. But it was my kind of first massive failure, but also my first real understanding of what storytelling is. Because as soon as I got into the edit room and saw what I had shot, these beautiful things that made no sense, was the first time I went, oh, okay, there's something here that I still don't know. So when I then moved back to Britain, I the first thing I did was I enrolled in writing courses. Um, and started um, teaching and learning about story and what story is, not about plot, because I thought plot was story and did understand that the story is very different from plot. Um, so it took me a while to get that and to understand that. So as I was doing that, I then started applying for more different schemes. I There were very many schemes I applied to that I didn't get on. And um, I then, at the same time, in order to make money, started working as a script supervisor. And that really brought home the sort of technical skills for me, because being so close to the director and looking at, you know, how they cover a scene, what lenses they use, how to how we're breaking down the script again was just it, like that was craft that really taught me craft. And while I was doing that, then I applied to Film London and got Winnie and the Duppy Bat. Um, and that was my first British film. But I would see that almost like as my first film in a way, because it's the first time I did a short film where I knew about story and script writing, where I knew more about um, filmmaking, the technical aspects of filmmaking. So... Yeah, and I think that made a huge difference because that film did really well and ended up at the HBO, uh, what is it, the American Black Filmmakers HBO Short Film Award. So we were nominated for that. And that then taught me, okay, this is the, this craft that I am learning, the storytelling that I'm learning, this is just as important as just doing the work, doing the work. You need to understand these elements. But these elements and also in how they relate to you, because everyone has got a different voice. Everyone has got the same tools, but use it in a different way. So that was this, which I I think boils down to voice. And that is something I still am exploring. But when somebody first told me about voice, I was like, I didn't even know what that means. And then as I got on, I'm starting to understand, oh, that's maybe what voice means. And so for me, then I just kept going short films, do short films. I ended up with 10, I think, in the end. Each short film brought its own issues, its own challenges, whether it was technical, emotional, um, political, personal. There were always things that I had to navigate through as a filmmaker and which had an effect on on the project that I was making. And it was great because I think it's just the best training ground and um, by the time we got to the NFTS, we were entitled to one interview that will enable us to, you know, be looked at for the film school to see if we could get into the film school. And I'd been 
applying to film schools all these years and didn't get into a single one. And then in that interview, I was told I was too experienced to go to the school. And that was that moment of like, oh, wow, it's come full circle. So yeah, that that was quite fun. That's insane though, isn't it? Because it's like, that's kind of one of the routes in. And it's not even necessarily about, it's, it's having the opportunity to sit and make films and the platform it can give you, yeah. which is... Like you're never too experienced to do that, <laughs> to like yeah. get a platform. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Um, yeah. What I really liked about what you were talking about then, Annette, was how, and you did a feat, did the low budget feature, did you know you, you you create some pieces of work, but then you realised that the craft part was something that you had to develop, and you recognised that you were aware of it. Because obviously our audience is, is everybody from you know people who are early stage and you know people that are going into the industry. And one of the things is in that that I draw a parallel with my own journey is that you have to fail to actually realize and you have to keep failing. I mean, you've done 10 shorts. Some people go into the industry off one or two shorts and they think that that's it, it's a silver bullet. But here, uh, you know, you are, who's done 10 shorts and then was told actually all the stuff you've been trying to get into, you're too experienced for, which is insane. And uh, you've done a lot of schemes um, and whatnot over the years. And there's obviously, there are some that exist now. There's very few that actually carry you through into the industry. You know, I think I think Top Boy was probably, is probably one of the last ones that actually took directors and took them through and got them the first credit. Are schemes and training grounds helpful? Or do you think it's all about just going out there and making? Because in a way, you, you are self-taught. Um, I think schemes are incredibly valuable, I think. Um, and it's a shame that we're losing so many of them. Because the thing that the scheme, the, all the schemes I've done has taught me, I'm knowing now, or I'm learning now, how to pitch, how to be in front of a board of people and talk about your ideas and convince them, um, how to be accountable, uh, how to uh, manage deadlines, how to take notes from execs, um, how to listen. These are things that, because I've done them quite a number of times on the schemes, I kind of feel like they're just like, I'm going into meetings now where, or like when I was in the HBO thing and, um, or same with Doctor Who, I just felt like, oh, all of the stuff, all these discussions that I'm having with them are discussions I had with execs on the schemes. They then were teaching me about those. Whereas now I'm actually in these meetings and I'm in these discussions. And I just feel, I felt so prepared for them. And I think that's what the schemes did. So to me, the scheme, I think everybody, if they have an opportunity to get on a scheme, get on one. Because it, it's not just about making the film. It's about everything else. that go, Because when you go into television or, or feature films, you are accountable to so many people. And there's so many discussions you're going to have with them and so many things they're going to tell you that you might not want to hear. And if you're coming in there getting all sort of bent out of shape and and um, feeling, um, what's the word? Um, not resentful, but... Um, like defensive. Defensive, that's the word. Um, you, you'll end up in a really terrible dialogue and a really terrible relationship um, because they're the ones that hold the money. You need to know how to talk to them. And the, the, the schemes, are that's exactly the same relationship, except that they are coming from a more educational point of view, so they will do all those dialogue, but they will support you as well and tell you if you're being too much this or if you're not being open or if you're not talking or any of those things. So 
they are incredibly competitive. So not everybody can get on them. And if you can't get on them, it doesn't mean that you're, you shouldn't be making the films. Go and make the films, of course. But if there is a chance, it just gives you that bit of extra when you then step out into these big meetings and um, yeah, these big rooms, basically. So it almost like professionalizes you. Like we, we, we say in our, in our spiel at the start, how do you go from shooting some of We Amazed to being the most senior person on a film yes, set? Exactly. It's kind of like that. You, yeah. you, you are being professionalized so that you can speak that language because development people, execs, they're the money people. They're the people who want to make sure that, they, you know, your work's going to connect to the audience. And there's a language with that, that you have to understand. It's not just about, oh, I've got this great shot, brilliant. But how do you then, you know, like like articulate that to a board and also can you deliver because they're they're investing money uh, whether it's in you if it's a feature or they're investing in you to do their project that is costing them money so they need to know that you can deliver and so there's a dialogue that comes with that that you need to be prepared for and need to know how to navigate as well so that's it as yeah. well as that it's it's also unless you're full of money it's largely going to be their money and their risk so it's like yeah. that's the that's where the responsibility comes in right is that you can't go in and expect to bulldoze your way through the process and essentially they want to be heard they're creatives as well they get into it because they they like films and they they like the industry and they want to see their choices reflected in it as well so yeah as you're saying like if the, if you come in like defensive and stuff then it's not a way to build a strong relationship because hopefully you work with these people more absolutely. than once absolutely right? Yeah, exactly. And also just, it's understanding that it's not just about you. It's not just about you and your idea. It's about a collaboration between lots of people of which you, if you're the director, you're the leader of many of them, but you do have people above you. And it's it's about what that collaboration is. Everyone wants the best product that they can make. So that that should be the starting point. Exactly that. I think that I think that you know we talk we're talking about the benefit of schemes and you know I can't help but just talk about the diversity of it. I remember when I watched all your films and they said that time, and I think I was kept going on about it, like you've never swayed from who you are and the stories that you've told, and you've unapologetically told stories that were had universal themes, but they were black stories, and that was just amazing. And to me, it took the industry a while to catch up to what you were doing way back when. It's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> What's happened with you has happened, but you, you, you've never you've never wavered from who you are. And I think there's a lesson in that for others that you've got, you know, that voice, you've got to just be who you are, right? I think, yes. And I think, I mean, I never think of it that way. I'm just thinking about this is what I want to do and this is what I want to tell. And this is all I can do to the best of my abilities. So I think at the end of the day, you have to look at what it is that you want to tell. What is it that you're attracted to in terms of story? And how do you want to tell it? And then you have to find the people who agree with you or who are excited about how you want to tell that story. It's like Afia, my friend Afia and I are always talking about finding our tribe. Because when you find your tribe, you're finding people who agree with you on very similar issues in terms of creative choices. I mean, it's interesting because it doesn't have to be exactly the same. I'm I'm not a, necessarily a Doctor Who fan. I never really watched Doctor Who, but when they reached out to me and then I was like, okay, I'll go for an interview because they had seen Winnie 
And it's happy back when they saw Afropunk on, they were like, yeah, could we have a chat? So in order to prepare for the interview, I tried to watch as many Doctor Who as possible. And I was like, oh, actually, Doctor Who's changed quite a bit. But again, it's still not necessarily my world. But there was elements in there that I could relate to. So when we had a chat and I was talking to the producer and I was talking to Chris and Chris Chibnall and we, I realized I had a lot in common with them. And to me, that was the starting point. That was like, I think I can do this because we're talking the same language or we're talking a similar language and it's exciting. So when I then came to Doctor Who and yes, it's a, it's a formula that's lasted, what, 60 years. It's such an iconic show. I still felt like I could contribute whatever I bring to it because of the people I was working with and I felt like we connected. And I think that's how how I do it really at the end of the day. It's, it's like, this is what I feel, this is what I am, this is what I think. How do you feel and think, oh, well, similar things, let's do something together. That's kind of how I operate really. I don't know if it's the same with you guys, but. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I'd be intrigued to know because you said you were too experienced to do any more schemes and go to the film school and, and have that platform, but you hadn't quite broken through to be directing long form stuff yourself. So I'll be intrigued to know that when this Doctor Who opportunity came through, how did you prepare for that meeting? And was there any sort of apprehension about you being chosen for it? As I don't believe at that point you directed any other TV, right? No, it, uh, I hadn't. So, I mean, the first thing I asked was, were they looking for up and coming? You know, because it, what I didn't want it to be is a token yeah. interview. And I've had a few of those and, and I just I was like, oh, don't want another one. But then when I realized it wasn't, then I was like, okay, they aren't looking for up and coming directors to give them their first credit. Um, my preparation for that is to know the show inside out because then I can understand what I can bring to the show. So I, as I said, I watched it as many episodes from different seasons as well to just get an overview mm. or the arc of how the show has changed um, with different doctors as well so that I could see where Jodie fitted in yeah. and like what she brought to the show. So by the time um, I had the interview... I didn't talk lots about the show. We were talking about a lot of other stuff, but when some small thing would come up about the show, I would instantly understand and I could talk about it or I could ask questions about it. And so that gave me like an, a, an educated kind of position to talk with them about the show yeah. because I'd done my home. And did you did you prepare in, in the way of like having pitch materials and things like this as well? Or did you go in for a straight chat? No, because this is a well-established show, mm. I didn't need to do that because the, the visual format of that show already exists. So for me, it was looking at telling, showing them that I understood the show mm. because Doctor Who has got a very, yes, it's a sci-fi show um, and it's, you know, it's got all the sci-fi elements, but it also has, there's a tone with it that's very different to other shows. For me, I, it was important to understand what that tone was so I could talk about it. And I could only do that by watching numerous things and, and sort of seeing it and going, oh, okay, that's that, that's that. This has changed now. Matt Smith is very different to, you know, David Tennant to, you know, et cetera. And then being able to, when they were talking about stuff, being able to say, oh, that reminds me of such and such, but also to ask questions mm. that I had um, based around everything that I saw. And then also when I actually got the job, that was invaluable because 
when I then started working, understanding that tone, I came onto set immediately being able to say very quickly, this is going to work, that's not going to work, that's not the show, this shot is very much the show. One of the things that it, um, Chris talked about a lot was iconic. Mm. In his um, in the scripts that he wrote, there's like iconic shot of the Doctor. <laughs> now that can mean anything. Yeah. Like what is iconic shots? It's so subjective. Yet when you know the show, and particularly you, you know Chris's part of the show, mm. you then start to go, oh, that's what he means with iconic. And so I can understand that language and then I can implement it in the show. So it's all those, it's un, it's breaking it down. You, you really need to break down, if it's not your show, I think, you need to break it down to understand or what elements are they using that is successful to the show. Mm. Whereas compared to HBO, that was a new show. This was a something that was just starting. There was a lead director who had ideas about the show. Um, there is a very strong writer, Marlon James, who has a very distinctive voice. So again, looking at in my preparation for that interview, interviews, because I had a few, um, it was very much... Is that for Get Millie Black? Yeah, it was no. Get Millie Black. I had quite, I think, in four or five interviews. I can't remember, quite a few. Oh, wow. And it was understanding, first of all, who Marlon James is, like what is his voice, what is his tone, looking at the scripts that they gave me to read, what are they? Um, and then again, I didn't come with a, um, a pitch doc because there was a lead director already on board. So she was already prepping the style. But for me, it was uh, trying to understand, well, what genre are we in? And this was very much a film noir. And then looking at the, the script and then seeing, well, these kind of uh, films remind me of that. Does that sort of connect with what the lead director is is talking about? Because again, I'm coming in to continue what the lead director is setting up as a second block director. So um, I think it you have to just look at the, the material. You really have to pull it apart and look at, well, what is it? What is it that, that it's trying to be? What is it that it wants to be if it's a new show? And um, see where you fit in in all of that, because mm. that's just as important. And, and what would you say is the biggest difference between directing shorts and directing TV? But also, Annette, what is it about that which you feel was important that you carried through and, and helped you? The difference between directing, I think, TV and, say, your short is your short, you're mainly the one responsible for it. It's your voice, you're doing it. Even if you've got a scheme, it's kind of your, you're in charge of it. In TV, it's not. You are part of something that is really large and you have to find a way to collaborate with that. You have ideas, but some of your ideas may not come through. Whereas in a short film, it's all about your ideas. It's all about who you are and trying to express yourself. In TV, it's all about the show. It's all about you. Having said that, the, the process of filmmaking doesn't change um, whether you're doing a short or TV. So a good example for, for both, actually, for Doctor Who and for uh, Get Millie. In Doctor Who, when I first arrived on set, the very first day, we were shooting in the TARDIS. And the TARDIS is a very iconic set. It's actually a very complicated set as well, just the way it's built. Mm. So for me, the first kind of moment of like, I'm going to have 
Jodie, the doctor, I'm going to have all the main actors in a very iconic set on my first day, oh my God. And then I arrived on set, the monitor was there, script supervisor there, AD came up to me, asked me a question. The DP was like, okay, what's blah, blah, the first shot. And I went, well, th this is a short film. There's no difference. Yeah. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, God, yeah, of course I know what I'm doing. Mm. Because at the end of the day, that's your main kind of unit that you're working with. And of course, the actors and something slightly different, but the same on HB on the sh uh, Get Men in Black or the first day was it was a huge production, like what, from what I'm used to. Mm. I don't know, over 200 crew, like massive. And I came out and I looked at everybody and went, oh my God, I, this, what? And then I walked onto set and there was the monitor, there was the script supervisor, AD, DOP. And I went, oh, all of that, these massive like trucks and people, it, it actually, it doesn't matter because you're still making a short film. You've still got the same people and the actors who you're going to be collaborating with and none of the, the big trucks at the back and the 250 people, they don't matter. Yeah. And that's when I, you go, oh, that's actually the same thing. And so that's how I, I always sort of bring myself back to, it's just a short film. It's it's all fluff, right? Ultimately, you can only get a certain amount of shots in the day <laughs> and yeah. you move at like the similar pace. You just have more toys and fancier stuff going on. More toys, more people, but it's exactly the same stuff. Yeah. So I think short films really teach you how how to to do that. I think, and because I've done quite a few, it it's so familiar to me. Obviously, being a script supervisor as well, so I've been on many many sets, mm. and so that helps as well. So I don't feel like it's a strange place for me. It feels very fam it feels like home being on set really now. Yeah, and what what would be cool to know is what your prep preparation at like when you actually got the job so you got the job obviously the first thing you do is you get scripts and you read them but where do you go from there how hopefully how, yeah you hopefully, hopefully get yeah. the script hopefully it's not changing on the day you hopefully get the script and how do you kind of direct your prep like your resources because and, and how long did you have to prepare before you started shooting as well on Doctor Who they were very different and so the processes with Doctor Who was Again, just really familiarizing myself with the showrunner's reign of Doctor Who while I was waiting for the script and also spending time doing set visits with other blocks that were happening at the same time, just to get familiar with the speed with which they were they were able to go with that crew. It's almost like shadowing as part of your prep. Less shadowing, just just sitting back and watching. Just like you'd go there for an hour or two, and um, just and it's also really important to get to know the crew as early as you can, particularly if they're shooting already, because you can see them in action mm -hmm. and you see how they work and what how fast they are. So then you can incorporate that into your prep as to well, I'd love to do this many shots, but actually they're only managing like. I don't know, 15 shots a day, I'm thinking 25, it's never going to happen. So that's kind of why you would, it's important to do set visits. That became really important in Jamaica because when we were shooting for Get Many Black in Jamaica and Jamaica had its own obstacles and challenges and one of them was 
again, being such a large crew and coming to some of these locations that did not were not film friendly. And not by people, I just mean by in terms of the actual location well, we're at. So access and like just getting the equipment down and then shooting there, but being aware that as soon as the rain comes, it will take half an hour before it gets flooded. And so we'd had somebody up in the mountains who would give you a warning that water was coming and we would have to take the you know, stuff yeah. like that. So you needed to understand those challenges and then go back and go, right, how how can I make this work in terms of how I think this idea is going to be? How many shots can I tell it in? Because realistically, I've seen we can only do it in these many shots. So I can't then suddenly be all like, oh, well, we're going to be different. If I know that this is a professional crew working as hard as they can, and this is how many shots they can do a day, I have to put that into my thinking process when I'm prepping. But I definitely... In terms of the my prep, I over prep. So I don't think people necessarily prep as much as I do. But for me, my first thing is to read whatever I have, whether it's a script or whether it's an outline, whatever it is. But say we've got a script, read it first and then just get a sense of what it is. Then read it again and then start looking at things that stand out to me, but also looking at things that I don't quite get or things that character-wise I'm not sure about, then I you usually have access to the script department or to the showrunner. You have meetings with them. So um, with Get Millie, I had numerous uh, script meetings where I would sit down with the script department. I had a list of questions or a list of thoughts around certain things, like why is this character doing this? Mm. Or why are we here? Or this would actually be problematic to shoot. Is there a way? Or this is not very visual. Is there something we could do? Um, so once all of that is done, then I start breaking it down in terms of this is a scene that this is happening, but what is the scene really about? And as do you remember, um, Oz, the guy at, was it Ian? Ian Seller. Yeah who um, helped and taught us this idea of creating this one sentence for the scene that tells us, because that is the sentence, that sentence is what you're really shooting. And so I do that with every single scene, which takes a while because you, you know, you're really sitting there trying to understand what is the, what's really happening in this scene. Once you've got that, then, and the, uh, the, the character arcs, then I start looking at how I'm going to shoot it. Mm. Um, I know people do it differently and they may go straight into how they're going to visually do shop lists and stuff. But for me personally, I my camera is very, very character-led. Um, even if I'm in a genre piece, uh, piece like film noir, it has to be character-led for me. Um, I'm not particularly keen on camera movements for the sake of camera movement for it to look good or pretty or epic because after a while I think that gets boring. It has to be related to story. It has to be related to character. So, and the only way for me to do that is to do that story breakdown first and character breakdown, because then I know that if this scene where two people are sitting and talking, but it's really about loneliness and distance, then I can incorporate that into the cinematography of that scene. Mm. And so then I I have shot lists that I have for every morning and um, I have a basic choreography for the actors as well which comes from theatre. So you're thinking about blocking before you kind of get there oh, loosely. Oh, for sure. It, loosely yeah. because because of time. 
because uh, there's very little time. If I had more time, I would probably not so much do blocking, but have an idea of shots mm. and then work with the actors. But when you're doing two one-hour episodes in like 24 days, there's no time. But what I do is I will have a shape of a blocking and go in there and in my rehearsal with the actors, I will give them the shape and then I will adjust it according to what motivations they've decided. And it usually is more or less close to what I've done. Sometimes we change it completely, mm. but most of the time it's sort of, it's there. And then I use the actors to add and refine. I always listen to my actors. So if then I like, mm, this doesn't feel right, then I drop it instantly. I never am completely wedded to my blocking ideas. They're just there to help me start the day. Mm, mm. Uh, and then we go from there. And the blocking then also defines the shots as well. Um, so then that makes sense. On average, because it's TV, on average, unless it's a big, massive scene, with lots of people, I will try and stick to four, possibly five shots per scene, just so that I can make the day. I'm also now used to running two cameras, so that really helps when you have a long piece of dialogue with seven or eight people that all need reaction shots. Mm. So then I will incorporate my shot list with the two cameras. So I know that maybe I have five setups, but actually I may have seven or eight shots mm. or maybe 10 shots, but done in five setups with two cameras. So again, that takes like choreographing and working out. So yeah, prep, lots of it. And also like with you, Annette, you know, you've done a lot of editing over the years, you know, you've edited other people's films. You've been a, a script supervisor as well. Can you talk to us about what script supervisor is? A script supervisor is there to, to first of all, communicate everything that goes on set to the editor. So they are taking note of everything that's shot and making sure that everything that's shot can be edited together in a way that makes sense. So not creatively, but more sort of logically the simple things of what we know continuity which is like the actor has to do the same thing over and over again so that it did that arms and cigarettes don't jump and drinks don't all mm. that but it's much more than that it's also looking at well if the camera is looking this way and a character is looking this side of the camera to that side of the camera we have to make sure that when we cut to the other person they have to look in the right direction so when you put it together it looks like the two characters are looking at each other, yeah. which is called crossing the line or not crossing the line. There's also looking at making sure there's a smooth, if people are running, if people are moving, if people, you know, that again, everything is shot out of sequence. So the script supervisor is making sure that all the choices that the DP and the director are making are in line with this kind of logical kind of line of editing that it makes sense mm. so looking at the acting if somebody is in one room and they're really really upset and they exit the room and slam the door that's one thing scene cut to they're outside the door and they're walking towards somewhere else but you're shooting that a week later then 
the actor needs to know if they don't remember the script supervisor will say remember in that scene we shot last week you were in this room and you and you slammed the door and you were really upset mm. and you were crying mm. so the actor then can go oh yes let me pick up from that and continue so when you cut it together it looks like that moment is two seconds later and not a week later yeah because some directors they may have a sense of of that already of like emotion you'll be here but the script supervisor will actually have receipts <laughs> they will have yes, like pictures exactly of, of how it actually looked for it to then be communicated specifically yes to make sure there's no variance in your in your imagination or your memory that's right because you can remember things really well but they may be wrong yeah no exactly uh, so yeah no no so there's there's lots of like interesting other uses which i saw on thrones which was which was used was like you might have just given a note to an actor or something or like you might just be back and forth so much that you might almost be pissing them off. And then like, you'll go to the script supervisor and you're like, actually they said this, but they need to say this. Script supervisor yes. can just go and give that note, right? To to actors, yes. which yeah, yeah, yeah. almost like is another tool which directors can use if they know they know how to use them properly. Definitely. I think um, a, a lot of directors don't understand what a script supervisor does and think it's just there to tell them they're doing something wrong. And that's just silly. Because the script supervisor is there to support the director, um, yeah. to make sure that their vision is being executed to the best of everyone's ability. So, and they're just recording everything. Um, also, making sure that everything is covered, so that there may be some really fancy camera work that's been done, but one line is missing, and that one line is essential mm -hmm. because it's a plot point. That script supervisor will go, "Oh, just by the way, are you happy that that line's missing? If not," You might want to do it because that later on in scene, da -da -da -da, 20 pages later, that's going to become a thing. Yeah. And sometimes the director will go, no, no, I've dropped it because of that. And the script supervisor will go, yeah, great. And cut it off their list. Or the director will go, oh my God, thank you so much. I forgot about that. So um, that's what they're there for really. And the the DP is um, works really closely with the script supervisor as well because they're constantly checking what lens did we shoot that on last week mm. or was that sharp? Do we need to go again? Oh yes, there was a little bit of that uh, that flag in, in shot. You know, all those kind of things. So they multitask script supervisors. And again, for any director, upcoming director, if they want to learn about the craft of filmmaking, start script supervising, it will teach you so much from scripts to cinematography, to acting, to directing, everything even production design. I think that's a really, really smart suggestion because I was, I used to think a lot about what would be the best place to to kind of learn. I don't think it's a director's assistant, to be honest. I mean, fair enough, you get exposure to the meetings, fine. But I mean, that, that only teaches you so much. And I used to think it was editing because I think editing is, you kind of see, you kind of see it for what it is and you kind of work it that way and you're always thinking about story. But I, I think in terms of learning the craft specifically about how to cover scenes and getting exposure to being on set. And usually it's seen as a trinity where it's like the the first AD, the director and the DOP, but actually the script supervisor is always right next to them as well, um, but doesn't always. kind of get the same love. So that's, that's a really, really smart suggestion, I'd say for people that want to get into it. Um, it might not be the sexiest mm. on the page when you're kind of looking at places to be on a film set, but it's, it's vital and the exposure you get to the whole process is massive. And you get to, you see so many different directors, you get to work with many directors. So you get to see all the different styles and all the different ways that you can shoot something. 
and again with the DPs, um, how they how they work and what their relationships are as well. It's such a good training ground. Mm. Um, and it's become a lot easier now in one sense because everything's become digital. Because when I started out, we were still handwriting everything. Every single take was like, and now you can type it into an iPad and be all fancy and stuff. So it's, it's much faster and you don't need to take a Polaroid. You can do it on your phone or you can do it on your iPad, you know, and then you can trans, you know, everything now is mm. just so much easier. So yeah, I think it's it's a good way. It's a good way in. You 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 were we can tell this out if you were you were script two for some blue story, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it, that was a that was a tough um shoot because we were it was winter time and we were like two and a half weeks or nearly three weeks outside non stop mm. because a lot of it takes place on the streets and and it was just absolutely freezing. So that that was a, a challenge. Also, a lot of non-actors or new actors um, who were coming up. Uh, this is just now from a script supervisor's point of view. So, but yeah, was some great people to work with. And it was, um, Joy, the producer, was amazing. And yeah, I, I actually had a really good time. It was really fun, and it I filmed it well, which is just so wonderful. Like, yeah, yeah. It, it, well, so we we had Stephen and Ray Tan, who came on the podcast and and gave us a few anecdotes. But it was um, he's a lovely. Yeah, he's he's really good vibes, and it it sounded like a colorful shoot. Yeah, yeah. It it was intense shoot, and I think he did a brilliant job mm. actually, because there were so many different types of skills on that set and um and he he managed to sort of bring them all together to work together beautifully actually um i really enjoyed working with them and sorry just to dart back to to doctor who so you have the scripts and you've kind of got your approach how much sort of creative license are you are you taking with the sequences so there was um I saw that you kind of did a couple of, of smart things um especially like the shift well after the first time loop and everything sort of like gets a bit closer on on the main characters and also um slightly dutch angled as well which i guess it just means it's kind of like tilted slightly did you have to get stuff signed off or like pitch these sorts of ideas or or yeah it'd be interesting to know about that for me again i can only i think each experience is different and each show is different and each show run on all exec is different so but with um chris it was really easy because we talked in detail about his vision for the story um what he wanted from the story and then i went away with that um and he did a great thing he shared a playlist with me he didn't know but i always write to music and i always have playlists that that help the world for me so when he gave me this playlist, because it was New Year's Eve, the story was set in New Year's Eve. And so he had this New Year's Eve party stuff, but it was all very specific kind of songs that he had chosen that sort of give, I don't know, an an, an extra layer to the, to the story. Mm. And so that was just emotionally, I really connected to that. After understanding what the story stuff he wanted from me, I started creating a visual style around that, but also because I'd seen the locations and if you remember the locations, there's there are lots of 
sort of these like corridors, long corridors, yeah. or you're in these spaces. It's really economical. Yeah, and I just felt like if I'm going to be in a space that is long and sort of narrow, I have to have the camera moving to have something dynamic. Otherwise, they'll just be standing in a corridor talking. And um, so I looked at the language of camera movement. And so I felt I needed to use the steady cam a lot and this, um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's like a like a wheelbarrow where you put the the camera guy on and then you and then you run with it. So because we wanted a lot of running shots. Mm. And and then I suggested uh or I pitched it to Chris and said, look, based on these locations and the type of story what that we're doing, these are the visual kind of things that I have in mind. And so I there were lots of shots that I'd taken from different films and put together like not a pitch doc, because it wasn't even a pitch doc, it was just pictures. Mm. And then just showed it to him and said, this is what I'm thinking. And he really loved the idea. So once I knew that he loved the direction I was going in, I felt that he trusted, like, and he accepted what I was going for. So then I felt very free to sort of design around that. And so, yeah, and, and then I could, that's when I can get playful. So with that first time loop, well, the reason why it was Dutch is because we we were going through exactly the same scene again, but something was different mm. and they were feeling different. And I felt like you visually had to sort of show that, yes, it's the same, but it's not. Mm. And they're feeling the same, but not. Um, and that was in one way for me to play with that. But that, again, came out of character. That wasn't because it was like, oh, it would be cool now to do Dutch to just make it more interesting from the first one. It's like, no, they're unhinged now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, let's Dutch. So that that that's how it works for me. It made a lot of sense, and I guess in terms of like, so you're you're saying you brought a lot of the running to the to those sequences as well in terms of the yeah, I, don't, I mean. Yeah, uh, there was some running in it, but you know, if there's a Dalek on one end of the corridor, you're gonna run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it made sense to to have them running, and also I thought it would look great if they're running down these really massive long corridors and you're running behind them, and if we can get them to run at full speed, mm. uh, the camera can follow, then that's going to be exciting. So that's what I decided to do, and it was so interesting to see them run because everybody. It's got their own way of running. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, and we wanted, obviously, this is like heroic running when Doctor's running and Doctor, you know, all of them did brilliant runs. But um, Yaz, who who is played by Mandip, she just turned into this, like, bionic woman. And just, like, she looked so awesome running on, uh, on camera. It was really, really cool. So, yeah, we had some fun with it. I, I think that's really cool because I think with... What, what you might think is that you get a script and then you kind of need to execute that script word for word. But it's good to hear that within the blocking, you you can kind of like, you interpret it in whichever way you kind of not see fit, but as in like, you saw the limitations of the environment and what it could look like. So he was like, to inject energy into it, we can do this and it's going to add to it and and to kind of create a yeah, new Yeah, and I think what's really important though is I think one of the reasons why in both shows, um, I managed to get such leeway is because, again, I was looking at the show and the characters. And so I wasn't trying to do something else that wasn't in the show. I was trying to make the show using 
things to elevate the show, but it still had to be the show. Mm. Because if I suddenly started doing, you know, Bergman um, in the corridors, yeah, Chris would have pulled me up and gone, what are you doing? Why why have we got this long, lingering, kind of quiet shots when there's a Dalek at the end of the corner? That makes no sense. So it's, you have to, you have to do it. You have to design around what it is that the show is, I guess. Amazing. Obviously, that was that was something that's got a sort of like long-standing form. It's got a long-standing language um, with Chris taking over from that. But what was it like when you went on to get Millie Black? Because that was not something that was, you know, there was a lead director and you had to create a style, you had to create a show. And, you know, they say that season one is always hard for a show. Yeah, um, it is. So what was that like? Can you talk us through like how you approached that? So this was different in the sense that there was nothing to to watch, to see. So everything was recreated from scratch. So there was a lot of discussions around what could it be? And because I was coming in in second block, I was very much like, well, what has been discussed already? What decisions have already been made? What directions are you thinking of going in? And then taking that and sort of putting, it's almost like putting those goggles on when you then start reading the script, that you've already got certain ideas based on what people have told you this could be. Then when Block One started shooting, I was still in prep, but I had access to what they were shooting, their rushes. So that was really useful, which I had for Doctor Who as well, by the way. And it's brilliant because it, it shows you what's going on. And particularly for a new show, it's really important because then you're seeing the decisions that are being made on camera for block one. And so then you can sort of see what works, what's not working so well, and then adjust. And then still talking to the powers that be or the creative HODs to make sure that you're going to continue, but also maybe the things that didn't work so well in one that you can say, oh, okay, maybe then what if I did this? But again, referring to the director and going, I'm thinking of this. What do you think about that? And uh, the lead director in on Block One, but the lead director on Get Millie, she was amazing. She was very open. Um, she was very creative. Um, she had a very strong idea of what she wanted. And um, I was just, she was so open to talk to, like, you could text message, you could WhatsApp her, you could, you know, I had access to her. And then the producer as well, she was amazing. So she was like moving between block one and two. And um, when it came to locations and things like that, it, it was very important to have her to say, well, actually block one, they've been doing this. And then you can go, oh, that's not really gonna fit with that decision. So you can then adjust. So it's all about conversation having lots and lots of conversations around it and making decisions, yeah, collaboration, making decisions together. Um, even if the person is a lead director, you're still, they're still going to rely on you as much as you're going to rely on them. So yeah, having a discussion is um, really important. And then Marlon as well. I talked to Marlon a lot to find out what he wanted from the show. Like what was important to him? Uh, what themes were important to him? What were important to him in the block that I was doing? Because it may be that I thought this was important, but it may not be that important to him, for example. 
in which case then what I'm thinking is not right. I need to go back to hearing what he's saying. Oh, he wants to go in that direction. Okay, let me explore that for a minute and see with my point of view going in that, that direction, where do I end up? So what were the hardest things to navigate or the hardest lessons as a first-time director in TV for you to think, oh, maybe there wasn't? I think it's probably, particularly with high-end TV, the toughest thing is you're shooting that very fast schedule, but they want it to look like cinema. And cinema takes time to shoot. So it's it's finding that balance, being able to know when to push for something that you know is just going to look stunning and will elevate the show. And times where you're like, it's going to do that, but we don't have time. This bit is more important. It's less sexy. But what's happening in this scene is is really pivotal to this character at some point, some point, mm. wherever that is. You have to make those decisions really quickly. There was one day I was shooting and our days were packed. Every single day was packed and it was really tough. I was making the days, but oh my God, it was tough. This one day we were in a location and it's the last big scene before the end of the episode, really important scene between the two main characters in this location that's the size of a bathroom. It's a small house, uh, two small rooms. There's no air conditioning. So the actors, like within five minutes, are soaking. Mm. Their clothes are soaking. Very little movement. Um, you can move, but it's tough. And it's like a, I don't know, three and a half, four page dialogue scene. We had 40 minutes to shoot it. Wow. And I just thought, okay, we need the scene. We're losing the location today. I'm not going to have them stand there and talk. Mm. We need to make something interesting and we've got 40 minutes to do it in. And that's when you know when you've got a good crew, when you know your actors are on point. Because they, those actors, they just delivered. They knew their lines. They were well prepared. And I said to them, we've got 40 minutes to do this. Are you with me? And they went, right, let's do this. So having the actors on board, number one, because they know they don't have many takes. They're going to have to like pull it out of the bag, come what may. And then the crew, we had these two rooms and two cameras. We needed to shoot with two cameras because there was no way we were going to make more than maybe three setups, not even setups, takes mm. or something. Mm. So I had to quickly uh, get rid of most of the ideas that I had for that scene and simplify and made it into these long things where they were walking from one room to the other with two cameras and each take, we would have to get bits, different bits of the conversation or different things to make sure that the whole dialogue was covered and everybody was on camera saying the lines they had to say. And we did a quick rehearsal and then we did a crew show, which is when the crew comes in and we show the crew what we're doing. 
and the camera department looked at me like, are you insane? We have 40 minutes. And I was like, right, okay, this is what we're going to do. And then they were like, right, okay, let's do what we can. And everybody just somehow did it. And we had three takes and it's a mental scene, but it works. And we got it in the bag and it's become a really kind of powerful scene. And that is where I feel like you can distinguish between people who are experienced in a moment like that and people who are not. Because people who are experienced, they it's still difficult. Mm. 40 minutes scene is ridiculous. Mm. But because they're so experienced, they know, like, if I go camera, steady cam guy, Jess, amazing. If I just do this, then I can get this and this and this scene. If I go that or this bit, and then as they're running, I'll come around that way, then I can catch her here for that one. And they were working that out as we were shooting it, mm. which that tells me how amazing this crew is. And so we got it in the bag. That's television. So did you like use half of your time doing the setup and crew show, like the rehearsal and stuff? You probably must have used like half of the 40 minutes on that, right? No, no. I had like five minutes. You, had, you did that in five minutes? Five minutes. Wow. But having said that, the reason I could do that in five minutes is because I was over prepped. Mm, mm. So I knew exactly what I needed from the scene. I'd already worked out the location and what shots work in there mm -hmm. based on just the shot list that I had created. Yeah. So I knew that scene inside out. I knew the points that were important to get inside out. Mm. And the shot list that I had created, I knew, I knew which shots worked or not. Mm. So when I had to scrap all of that, I'm not really scrapping all of that. I'm scrapping the shots that I created, but the information is still there in my head. So I can quickly rebuild something in five minutes because I've spent five hours previously mm. working out what I want to do with this scene. And that's where your one line sort of like reduced comes in. That's where you're, I remember you talking about when we spoke about this on a separate Zoom about how you your character asks, what does this character want from this? What does this other character want from this? And where is it going? And all of that comes into play, which is which is prep, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I guess it doesn't it didn't it doesn't hurt that you've got a scripty supervisor mind as well. Yes. So you yeah. So I know exactly you know. when. So again, that that becomes really handy, and also in terms of editing, when you're running out of time, sometimes you can't run the whole scene um, because you're running out of time. So you will. Sh I can. I know what I need. So I'll just shoot those bits as if I'm editing. Um, to make sure that I get it. Amazing, that's that, that's really really insightful. I think I think that the 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 last sort of like question I've got is, look, you you spent a long time sort of like, you know, making shorts and and, and refining your voice, getting there and everything. How did you stay emotionally resilient and set with self belief? Because, you know, you did Winnie in two thousand and six, and you did shorts before. And then it was 2021 when you did Doctor Who. And, I, and, I, and this is because I want to know for other people who are listening, you know, trying to get into the industry and they might be feeling like, man, I just feel like everything's closed off because it's a tough industry. Yeah. I'm not going to lie, it's not easy. There are many times I had doubts and times where I was going to give up because I just thought it was too hard and I was too poor and why am I doing this? 
but there's also this drive it's not even a drive it's a a deep need to express myself creatively and i always come back to that and so i always kept myself busy one of the i don't i can't remember if i told you this Oz, but sorry if i repeat myself to you but one of the most one of the times where i was really ready to give up was before i went on the scheme it was 2016 around that time and i had had enough and i thought i, this, I was never going to make it i had gone to interviews never gotten it and felt like they were tokenistic interviews and I was doing all these shorts and wasn't getting anywhere. People were doing their shorts were, you know, catapulted into all these different things. And I just felt like, you know, didn't I was struggling to make the rent each month and, you know, just it just was not good. And um I then decided it was time to give up and that maybe I should go back to school and maybe get a certificate in teaching and then start teaching. Uh, my heart sank, not because I love teaching, not because I was going to be a teacher, but because I was ready to give up. And so on this particular day, it was a really bad day. I was boiling my eyes out because I just didn't want to end, but thought this, I had to. And then BAFTA, because I was part of BAFTA crew and they had sent, no, it was Directors UK. They had sent a, you know, they send these invitations to films with Q&A afterwards. Mm. And um, there was a film called Moonlight that they said to me, and it was a Q&A. And I didn't know who the guy was, didn't know anything about the film. I was so depressed and I was like, look, just cheer yourself up and go and see this film. And it was at the cinema just off Green Park, that one where they usually have it. And I went there and I saw this film and I was just like, but this is what I want to do. This is." the stuff that I want to make, like it's being made. There were all these black characters and it's beautiful and it's not in a ghetto and it's not guns and drugs and no disrespect to that genre, but it's just not the stuff that I am interested in doing. Mm. And uh, then the Q&A happened and Barry Jenkins came out and he was talking about how he did his first film and then it was nine years between that film and Moonlight and he was depressed and he was giving up and he was close and I just looked at him and I watched the film and I was like but he's saying everything that I'm feeling mm. and from that day I was like you're not going to give up yet you're going to give it one more try and I applied for everything and that year I got everything <laughs> and I got the NFTS I got the John Braybourne award I just I got everything and then that made me do the arrival and then I ended up here. So thank you, Barry Jenkins. That's a great story. Hopefully he hears this. No, that's, that, that's amazing. That day changed everything for me. Mm. And um, because it was just listening to somebody who was going through the same thing. And so I think coming back to what you're saying, Oz, in answer to your question, I think that is inevitable for a lot of people. You are going to feel like you're going to give up. You want to give up because it is so damn hard. And financially, it's a strain and it's a struggle. And if you have mortgages and children and stuff like that, it's virtually impossible to deal with. So what is really important is that you look to the people who inspire you. It is so essential 
because they're the ones that are going to keep the faith for you. They're the ones that who are going to remind you that this is what you want to do. Because otherwise, if you don't keep that flame going, it goes out. Mm. And then you're it's so difficult to to reignite it. It's it's really sad that the industry is set up in a way to make people have to give up on their dreams when they're clearly in your case because you stepped straight into it and have been nailing it ever since that you're more than capable of doing the job and had been for a long time and I think that's why we touched on schemes earlier on is because schemes are great but I don't think there's many of them which are fully paid so it's kind of you have to do a scheme on top of whatever you might be doing elsewhere and it's like if it was possible to do another job whilst directing and stuff directors would also be working (laughs) alongside directing like in the actual industry but that's not the case so I don't see why they expect people to do it but yeah it, it makes it skewed in a way which it allows people with with resources and means to to survive more freely in it and, and flourish a bit more on and that's without the connections they have as well so yeah it's a very very tricky industry and it, it's it's sad that there's there's voices like yours which which I'm sure there's probably another 100 plus Annettas out there who probably have given up at various stages yes. and I, I think that's a problem when we'll, I'm sitting in rooms and they're talking about skill shortages and stuff. And it's like, well, this is what has been created and it needs to be fixed, yeah. basically. Yeah, um, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And it's definitely sad to also hear that, you, obviously, I, I know you, but you, you know, you've spoken about giving up. You've just given us such an, an insightful sort of like uh, look behind the curtain of how high end TV works. And to me, hearing you talk, that that's what you're there for. That you, you know, it doesn't even feel like it's unnatural. It's it's what you're fit for. Yet you were thinking about giving up is 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 mad. It's it it, it doesn't make any sense to no. me. It's so yeah. weird. But, um, it's, it's, uh, yeah, there's so many of us who who have been there and who've struggled. There's another friend of mine who similar to me, and she just recently got her first TV credit, and it's taken years. And she has been ready for years. It's not like years ago she, you know, she was up and coming and still yeah. starting out. She was ready to do it years ago as well. Um, and it's so wonderful to see now that um, she's able to at least walk through that door like I am walking through that door. And let's see, you know, if the industry is really going to continue opening its doors to diversity that word but you know opening its doors then um we will hopefully in the next few years not be talking about it in the way we're talking about it now that's what i hope anyway and the very last thing uh is called nugget of the week and this is anything that's inspiring that's that's uh, inspired you this past week it doesn't have to be film related it doesn't have to be art related it could be anything so do you have a nugget of the week it's actually I mean it, it is for me I mean every, I think everybody's loving it it's a TV show it's The Last of Us I just started oh, watching it yeah um, and I'm not a zombie fan I don't know the the, uh, the, the the game but I do love Craig Mason as the writer and I just think he's done a stellar job I love the fact that it's more drama and character driven, even though it's a game and it's zombies. So he's really kind of challenging the genre that way. And I just think it's really good television. 
and beautifully done. So I'm just enjoying that at the moment. Mm. That's you, you don't need to convince Marcus. Yeah. This is a big fun. So when when we're getting on to House of the Dragon and stuff and we're speaking to the people at Warner, they're like, what, so what sort of shows would you like to go on afterwards? I was like, I mean, Game of Thrones and House of Dragon is great, but honestly, they're making a show based on the game, which I love, called The Last of Us. And if I could do anything, it would be that. And I've subsequently sent letters and stuff to them. And uh, <laughs> I'm just, I'm hoping at some point they'll call me up and be like, do you want to come on and do an episode? But yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. They kind of, they've just got commissioned for season two, haven't they? Yeah. So who knows? That would be an absolute dream. But that's that's a great that's a great nugget. Um, yeah, I've just watched the finale as well. Have you have you finished it or you just started it? No, la 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 la. la. Don't know it. Say no more. Anything yet? I'm doing seven episode seven tonight. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how about you, Oz? My nugget of the week is another book. So it's a book by a re- by an author who I whose work I, I I loved for a long time, and and that artist's name is Fifty Cent. I think I heard of him, yeah. And his book's called Hustle Harder, Hustle Smarter. And it's a really, really good book. Like, you know, he's, whatever anyone will say about 50 Cent is he's a hustler and he navigated the music game. You know, he's arguably one of the biggest sort of like selling albums of all time in terms of the rap genre. And then he's navigated into film and TV and he talks all about it and he talks about his own emotional resilience. And he talks about, it's, it's really, really interesting. Like, I think I finished it in like, for eight hours i was i was engrossed by just like his past and how he just made it work and how we navigated into <clears throat> film and tv so 50 cents book was all harder for us thought you were getting emotional there us with your throat <laughs> no 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 it's uh i've got i've got a frog in my throat i mean i mean costa can't be going on like that <laughs> but yeah it's a great it's a great book yeah and you marcus yeah, for, for me, I mean, it's just because of the Oscars and at the time of recording, the Oscars just happened on Sunday. So uh, there's a great interview with uh, the Daniels on Variety. So it's got a very clickbaity title. So it's How Michelle Yeoh Threatened Everything Everywhere, directors Daniel Kwan and Daniel Shiner. But I mean, that's just a topic of conversation. She didn't threaten them, clearly. Um, but it it was a joke. It's basically just like a 50 minute Q&A with the Daniels uh, prior, like maybe two weeks ago, just prior to the Oscars. And I, I watched that film again recently. And when you watch things for the second time, it allows you to really like dissect how things are made. And having done all the reading and watching around it and stuff, I just find, even though it was a budget of like 25 million, the way they they attacked it was like with a proper music video mentality. And I think they call it an indie feature, even though it had so much money behind it. I think what they achieved with that money was like beyond anything which most people have been able to achieve. Even like say Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness came out like a month after Everything Everywhere did and they stand side by side as as like feeling as expansive and, and as massive as as film. So it's it's yeah, I just find them really sort of inspirational and impressive. I'll check that out actually. You we'll 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 have a look at that. That concludes the episode. Annette, it's been great to have you yeah, on. Thank you so and much. It's been really, really insightful. Thank you. Already fun. Been a mini film school. <laughs> so if anybody does happen to be listening, get your questions in at the director's take at outlook.com and we want you to tell us what you want to know about the directing or film industry at large and we'll do our best to tell you. Yeah, because we want to shape this as a resource for you. So do get your questions in and reach out to us on Instagram, which is the Director's Take podcast and also on Twitter on at Director's Take. And do you have any socials, Anetta? 
I'm at Vanessa Lover on Instagram. Great. I think that's everything then. So I guess until next time, keep learning, keep failing and keep the faith.